0: I've seen in practice so many people that just get way worse injuries from being bit, scratched, or whatever by their own their own dog trying to help them uh, than they do- the actual injuries that the dog sustained. They start pawing their muzzle or rubbing their face on the ground, and then they're gonna start breaking off the visible white part of the of the quill shaft, and then you're left with that sort of really pokey, small black thing that could do who knows what. You know, unless there's one that's like a chronic problem, we're not gonna go cutting a little hole and trying to trying to pull it out in those situations. And when a dog gets in, they got like five or 600 in their face. I mean, you're not gonna find
1: every single one. It's like I told him, I'm like, hey man, you, you got the draught right? right. <laughs> that was step one in, in your adventure to the porcupine. GDIY 20 at checkout to save 20%. Alright everybody welcome back to another episode of GDIY presented by standing stone supply. My guest this time is Seth Bynum. Seth how you doing man?
0: I'm doing great Nick. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Uh, we're going to kind of explore a uh, a topic that every upland hunter you know that they're familiar with to some degree. They hope they never cross paths with it uh, while out there with their dog and that's porky porcupines. Uh, but First, I want to kind of pick your brain on something that's kind of a little bit more timely right now going around the country is this kind of respiratory disease. Uh, I want to get your take on that. But first, let's start off. Go Go ahead and introduce yourself for the listeners that may not be aware of who you are and what you do. Introduce yourself and then we can kind of jump on into this whole respiratory disease thing going around.
0: Sure. You probably want to hear my credentials for us start talking about
1: infections <laughs> Right. Yeah. yeah let, let's round it out first. <laughs> yeah. So,
0: I mean, when I'm not in the field hunting, my day job is a, is a veterinarian. And uh, so that's kind of that's that's how I support the family. And uh, and it's one of those things where I get the opportunity to blend together my two passions that for being in the field upland hunting with my dogs and also being a, being in medicine as well. So that's that's mostly how I spend my time. Mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah. And I live in Idaho. I have actually grew up in North Carolina, have lived out West for more than 20 years now in Western states like Montana and Washington now kind of easing back to the East a little bit in the panhandle of Idaho, which is a, which is a great upland state.
1: Yeah. I, I got my first taste of Idaho earlier this year and I, I know I'll be back at some point. That that was a, a cool trip. You have definitely have some special terrain out there and, I'm excited to check back there. What do you primarily do out there? There's a lot of opportunity and different species to chase. What do you prefer to chase and, and what kind of dogs are you chasing them with?
0: Well, I'm German short hairs. Um, I'm down to two now. I lost our older dog in October. He was 14 mm. and was in his 15th hunting season, hunting pretty strong until uh, cancer caught up with him. But um, so uh, I'm definitely a short hair addict and that's, I can't see myself having anything else except for maybe. Maybe a pointer, something with uh, less hair and not more, if you know, if you <laughs> right. know what I'm saying.
1: Yeah. So you like yeah. the short hair dogs.
0: Yeah, for sure. And uh, I've been enamored with pointing breeds for a long time. And uh, just from the first time I laid eyes on a short hair, the the striking roan and ticking is just really appeals to me aesthetically. And, and their versatility was another big attraction mm-hmm. early on. But you asked me about, about species, and, and Idaho is kind of fortunate that you can sort of dive into whatever interests you um i tend to follow the seasons more so than just going after the birds i want to go after first um i, I hate rattlesnakes so i tend to avoid anything like that's going to be in snake country until they're well put up for the year so there's some pretty decent rough grouse there's some declining but still passable pheasant hunting in spots and things like that so you can get into a variety of of uh upland species over the course of the year and then as as this time of year turns around although i was hunting chuckers yesterday in a t-shirt it was 50 uh no wow. snakes of course but it was um you know i try to try to go after those kind of birds later in the year
1: mm. how'd you do yesterday on your hunt
0: I did really well. Um, yeah. So, so the backstory is, and I want your listeners to hear this:
1: is that <laughs> I was, I, you don't have to go down it if you don't want to. <laughs> I, I didn't.
0: I didn't blow you off, but my I get a text from you. At, uh, we had scheduled this for yesterday. After I'd already rescheduled it once, and then I um, it was pouring rain, and uh, looked out the window, and there was like a little bit of a sucker hole opening up, and my wife was like, uh, "Your mo- my mom's getting the kids today from school," and I was like, "Green light all the way." So I just like jumped in the car. I even grabbed the wrong shotgun. I'm glad I grabbed one at all and just like beat it for the hills. And then you texted me like, hey, you want to start this thing now? And I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> I knew there was something I was forgetting. And it was your, it was your podcast. So we were rescheduled for for today. But um, yeah, we did, we did great. Um, the weather was, was fantastic. Like I said, it was warm. So the dogs were definitely hounding me for water pretty early on. And mm-hmm. I didn't pack quite enough for that type of uh demand if you know what i mean so i kind of yeah. strategize um usually I, like if it had been that hot you know in october or september i'd have twice that much or more um but it was more like the hun show really um we just kept running into coveys of huns and, and I've, I've never in my memory never shot a limit of them they're always just something that i'll grab you know one two three of them something like that as we're hunting chuckers or if we're hunting pheasants they could be in the same type of habitat but for whatever reason they were there and abundant and we did we did well on them.
1: Yeah, it seems like I mean it, this isn't just specific to to Idaho. So you know, people don't go marking your map saying I'm going to Idaho for Huns next year. But it, like, it seemed like. I- or the Huns just exploded everywhere this year. No matter where you wanted to go, the Dakotas, Montana, Canada—like, I mean, it's if it just it was like the year of Huns. Uh, from my experience, obviously going into Idaho, I got into quite a bit of them. But then just talking to everybody, it just it was just a really good year for Huns. And anybody that hasn't chased Huns, they're they're climbing up my ladder of of upland species that I really enjoy hunting. They're just they're just some cool birds. Yeah, they're cool to eat too, as well. I love the red yeah. meat that they,
0: that they have, um, and they're they're generally kind of kind of known for for running and kind of messing with the dogs a little bit. In this case, they were holding really tight. Um, you know, a couple of times I would scoot ahead of the dog on point, and the birds would be between the two of us, kind of thinking they're going to be mm-hmm. down the slope and another 20, 30 yards out, maybe running already. But no, in this yeah. case, they were really holding tight. It's a lot of
1: fun. Well, well good. I'm I'm glad to hear that the logistical mishap uh, resulted in in a good outing for you at the very least, but I'm glad we were we were able to, you know, circle back and, and link up on this and and as we kind of talk about this respiratory thing. Sure. I, I tried researching a little bit on it, but I I hate honestly researching things that are really timely in the news like this yep. right now because you read one thing, you think that you're starting to wrap your head around what's going on or what it might be or, or kind of where we stand uh, with the status of it. And then you read the next article and it completely just goes the exact opposite way. And so after reading a handful of articles and then lists of states on where it's been confirmed and then what that means, I finally was just like, all right. I'm just going to wait until I talk to Seth, because obviously, you know, you, you have a, probably a little bit better uh, knowledge of which resources to look at when, when we're dealing yeah. with something like this. So why don't you go ahead and instead of me trying to regurgitate what I've kind of uh, dug up and, and researched on my end and asking you questions, why don't you just kind of kick it off, tell everybody what's going on and, and whether we really should be concerned, at least to the level that a lot of people are right now?
0: Sure. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that there's always been sort of a cadre of respiratory diseases in dogs. Most of them are bacterial in origin. Some of them are viral. Um, it's Kind of that's sort of how we treat them based on that that uh, etiology. But uh, and I also want your readers to know that I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not an infectious disease expert. I'm just kind of like a boots on the ground guy dealing with this stuff in the clinic as you bring your patients in or you, you call me about your dog and, and want advice. Um, the, the reason why you've had a hard time finding things on it is that we really don't know a whole lot. And I don't necessarily want that to be cause for alarm in your, in your listeners, I feel like. Um, we'll probably get to the bottom of what's going on. I do think the media, you know, just for example, like in the clinic where I have my home base now, I don't believe we've seen anything that's been definitively a case of this. okay. there's been some maybe in southern Idaho and here and there and they've and I'm not saying it's not a problem for those people that have experienced it. but I think in terms of it being like um an epidemic or a pandemic, I feel like um we're not to that point yet. but I do think the media kind of likes to make I mean that's just good news to have something kind of that it yeah. strikes a little fear in folks and they want to know more about it. Um, what we do know is that there is some sort of un, unknown at this point pathogen that's out there causing mild to moderate and in some cases severe um, respiratory disease that can be just limited to the upper respiratory system. So like nose and throat in that area or get farther down and, and maybe contribute to some more serious conditions like a pneumonia. And um, I think why it's been a little startling to clinicians like myself and to some of our, our clients is that uh, they have not, res- this disease has not really responded to the typical, you know, battery of, of treatment that we kind of throw at these sort of things. Um, I think it's preferentially targeting sort of the, the, the young and the old, you know, or the immune compromised a lot in the way that, that COVID seemed to do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to make a comparison to to, to COVID nineteen, but just sort of as a, a a way that this seems to sort of affect people. But we don't really know. And um, at this point, I don't think. I mean, I think veterinarians are a little concerned and more like eyebrow raising. I don't think we're like throwing up the flag that everybody needs to panic about this. Yeah. Um, so that's the part I wanted to make clear, if nothing else.
1: Is, is there any kind of general advice you can give somebody? I say somebody's listening to this, and they are concerned. You know, it's just like we all lived it with COVID through our own own stuff, and everybody, you know, to varying degrees, you know, they cared or didn't care. And and I'm yeah. not kind of I'm not opening that can of worms here. But when it comes to how much somebody's concerned about it with their dog, is there kind of some general advice? Like, is it is it. Is it safe to go do your normal activities, maybe just stay away from other dogs? Or or you probably have the mind to where it's just like, hey, if your dog's vaccinated and you've done everything on your end, continue doing what you're doing. It's really not, not reason for concern as of right now.
0: I think it depends on what your daily activities are. I mean, if you're in sort of a high density kind of like environment with a bunch of dogs, I think you should probably, you know, exercise some caution you know uh, just uh, step it up a little bit more hand washing maybe if you're if that in your job in, involves that you've probably already had this discussion but you're gonna want to you know like maybe leave your clothes at the door or straight into the wash before you come into the home and maybe expose your own pets it does seem like there's a component of this that's that's contagious that you can sort of like transmit from your own clothing from another environment to your own your own pets but it's it's a little unclear at this point so yeah i mean, avoiding. I probably would avoid a dog park, but that's been my mo for a long time. Right? Um, yeah. If, if you can avoid uh, boarding your pet right now, that would be great. It's not like it's a guarantee that's going to happen, but anytime you get a bunch of dogs in the same space and they're 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 vocalizing and they're they're breathing and they're a little stressed from being away from their normal environment, that's just sort of a good conditions to to brew something up. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean it's like I said, you know, when I was kind of bouncing around article to article and resource to resources, that there really wasn't anything uh, to uh, the really should be highlighted but you know when i when i we do fall in this kind of situation where all the resources are all all kind of saying something different it's like well let's look at what they do agree on and and it seemed like all of them kind of mirrors re, reflects what you just said but then you know when they start talking about at least the vets kind of where you guys are are leaning towards on what may be causing a lot of this is is a lot of people got lax on their their pet vaccinations during COVID. Maybe they weren't going out, maybe they weren't doing the daycare as much, and and so they're thinking that maybe this is something that's been around before. It's nothing new. It's just that we have a lot more dogs unvaccinated, and and I I don't know. You know, I know we've kind of come across that in in people before, where people kind of get lax on certain diseases vaccinations throughout the years. Maybe they think some something's just completely long gone. And then next thing you know, people stop getting vaccinated for polio or smallpox. And then guess what starts popping back up in random places?
0: Sure. Yeah. And that's, I guess it's sort of safe to draw that parallel. I don't think we know for sure if sort of this, I mean, I think your your point about us being isolated and not having these dogs commune together because we were isolating ourselves as, as humans may have set up a situation in which you know, they all, we lost our, her, they, the dogs, lost their herd immunity towards, you know, these things that they're just sort of kicking around to each other. Yeah. Um I, As far as I know, there's really nothing, well, again, I think there's a lot of unknowns in this situation. Having the vaccines lapse is bad for other reasons. Uh, right. Carvo being the, <laughs> not the least among them is one I would be concerned about, but, um, and certainly rabies if you're in the uh, east of the Mississippi or south. Um So, yeah, I don't know if there's a vaccine shortage in that in that regard, or at least a vaccine coverage shortage. But I would I'd say that's something maybe to the fact that we've been been apart for a while.
1: Yeah, is there a, a resource that you would recommend for if somebody does care to kind of keep an eye to where this if they want to go to this resource that maybe you would recommend. It's kind of a general safe to where if they come out suggesting something you you can probably kind of trust it rather than maybe having to just google it and then just I don't know put <laughs> read twenty different resources and decide which one is there one that you would direct people to to going straight towards?
0: yeah, it kind of depends on your state. I mean there's lots of great Department of health websites and a lot of veterinary branches or under the Department of Health in states, you know, you can look at the Department of Agriculture, those were things. I think you're going to get reliable information. And I think the state's boards of veterinary medicine are going to have sort of a, you know, like a consensus statement that they're going to release from what, you know, here's what we know. And this is coming from our, you know, group of veterinarians that practice here. So those are pretty reliable sources. They're also, um, they're not going to put out something that's not going to be backed by some Whatever research we have available, or whatever data, it's not—it's not, it's not going to be sensationalized.
1: Gotcha. Well, it's—it's uh, it's something challenging trying to make sense out of the unknown. It's—it uh, it sounds like it's—it's going to be uh, at least a little bit longer before somebody makes some sense out of this. But it's uh, looking at the state list. It's like, yeah, I mean, it, it's popping up, but it doesn't seem to be. Uh, at least, you know, I've had a, a few listeners reach out asking, uh, about, you know, if I've heard anything different or if I could interview somebody on it and, you right. know, just looking into it, it doesn't seem like it's that vast spreading thing. It seems like it's, there's pockets of it. So Hot just kind of look into it. And, and if, if you, if there's reason for concern, like you said, you know, it, that, that's kind of up to left up to each owner and their prerogative and, and how they want to react. So, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Moving on to uh the main topic that, that we're gonna get into. This is something that this is not anything brand new or or unknown to us up. Oldest hunters. time. Oldest time. <laughs> it's uh it, it's a challenge that, you know, you do this long enough, you you're at least gonna come across the opportunity for it to uh mess up a, a day eventually for you or or your dog, and you know, more than likely both. But uh porcupines, it's uh this year, every year you hear from a lot of people saying, uh, you know, their dog got into a porcupine and you, and we can sit here and have some fun with it on which breeds we primarily hear that from or or whatever. There, there are certain types of breeds that are more uh, prone to to coming across the occasional porcupine than others. But this year, I don't know if 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 this is something that you're seeing on your end or people are bringing them in, but it just seems like porcupines are even more prevalent this year. I don't know if people are just putting it on social media or, or texting or calling or, or people just closer to me, at least on my end, it seems like a lot more people are running across them than, than in the normal hunting season. It, what, anecdotally, like are you seeing a little bit more porcupine incidents on your end this year or is it just, you know, par for the course as always? You know, I
0: I don't know about number of incidents. I I feel like you, you probably want to ask a biologist if there's a way you could get a bumper crop of of new porkies <laughs> based on conditions. But you know, maybe the same moisture that that helped those those Hans kind of explode this year in the spring put on the right kind of bark or other sort of nutrients they need to like have a successful you know uh, growth in their population. It's hard to say in terms of interactions with them. Um, I, I think it's probably a lot more just in terms of people have access to share those encounters more than they ever did. Um, and then I think that there's more people getting into the sport, more people, you know, getting out there and hunting. They're hunting more days, you know, per year than they used to and things like that. So maybe just more opportunity there. I guess in yeah. my own personal experience, I guess this year I have seen more, but, um, you know, I but I don't really it hasn't been like all of a sudden we have a bunch of bad experiences with them. Right. But I, yeah. ha, <clears> have I'm you, sure there's any have, data behind that.
1: Right. Have yeah. Have you personally had a run in with you, your dogs on porcupines? Have you had an incident that you've had to handle in the field?
0: Yeah. Of my own twice. Uh, both were really mild. Um, I try to porcupine break my dogs whenever I get an opportunity. Usually uh, I'll start training pretty heavily and and. Oh, early August and uh, when, when the weather cooperates, of course, and then we'll, we'll run into them. And they'll usually be about three or four feet off the ground in a tree. So they're not like an imminent threat, or at least I get a sense that they're there for first. The dogs will usually point them. And that's an opportunity where I'm not just going to go lighten the dog up with the collar, but more or less just create a situation in which the dog knows that I don't care. It's not important to me and they shouldn't have anything to do with that. Um, that's typically how I do it in the background. That said, I had my older dog probably, I don't know, seven, seven or eight years ago, put his nose on one. You know, it kind of was in like this perfect spot where like a, a hen would, would like hold real tight in some reed canary grass and you know came out with this with us with a nose full and that's it. Mm-hmm. Of course I'm glad it was not more than that because he was out of his mind, crazy about it. <laughs> you know, you know, just like completely inconsolable. And then I had uh, actually my, my eight year old female this year, she went in and just got her a little, a little sniff to see what it was, or maybe just, and, you know, just right again, right on the, just right on the Snip. tip of the muzzle there and that's it. So those were ones that didn't require very much very much work. I mean, that was a, you know, some needle nose pliers and a little bit of what we call brudicane. So just like, you know, a little strength and holding them down. That was, that's all they required. But I was with some folks that, uh, this week, twice, uh, not this week, this, this season, um, that their dogs went after him pretty good. One of them was on the cusp of needing sedation, but it was not to remove ones from inside the mouth, but we, the guy that on the dog chose not to do that. And then there was another one that was a two person job, you know, and. So <laughs> that yeah. probably could that dog probably would have wished it got it got sedated. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty stressed
1: out by the end of it. And porcupines, it's it's an interesting topic because, like you said, it it can range from just you know just a couple in the nose, no big deal, and some dogs get the message on just a, an incident like that, just like a little quick, just run in brushing. Uh, I personally, knock on wood, I I haven't had any incidents with my own dogs. Uh, I actually haven't even seen one while out hunting, uh, or at least that I've noticed, you know, we, we may have passed them by who knows, but, uh, mm-hmm. I have been in the field to where some friends and in, in, in the group, their dogs got into them and both of them were pretty, pretty gnarly incidents. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it it can, it can go from just the two in the snout that you described to man, these, my buddy's dry Jacob. We, we told the story a few weeks ago on the podcast. He, he made it count. Like this was not just a couple in the nose, pull them out, go on your way. This was a two man job Mm -hmm. for an hour and a half to just clear the airway. And then it was get them to a vet so we can sedate them and and do this. Right. And so You know, when you're talking about incidents such as this, you know, people, you don't know what you don't know. So if you've never been around an actual serious porcupine incident, you might be one to be like, ah, it's no big deal. Just carry some pliers with you and and yank them out. Right. But when you kind of get into the situation and you start seeing how some of these quill, like they're hollow quills, there's barbs on them. Uh, It can go sideways on you pretty quick, especially when you start getting into them. And if you're going too quick, you're snapping them off at the skin and and all kinds of stuff. Uh, In in your professional opinion, what should be somebody's primary concern right off the bat? If your dog comes up to you carrying a porcupine like we were faced uh, uh, a couple months ago in Wisconsin, what you know th- there's a bunch of different ways we can go about this but like to you what's your first primary care like what are you trying to figure out right then and there
0: well i think before i do anything with my medical mind it's like self-preservation and that should be everybody's um that should be your own priority too because i've seen in practice so many people that just get way worse injuries from being bit scratched or whatever by their own their own dog trying to help them uh, than the the actual injuries that the dog sustained too. So I think for first of all, just make sure you have like a strategy for how you're going to protect yourself because you're going to do something that's uncomfortable or even far more than that in some some situations. And like even the most mild mannered dog, if if pushed to a certain level, they're going to try to like you know instinctively protect themselves. So that's my first thought in my mind. Beyond that, I feel like you you kind of need to have a sort of a baseline for. What can I do? What's beyond my level of expertise? And when do I need to get a, a veterinarian involved? And I think no matter which way you go in that regard, just do something quickly. Because when those things, those things are, they're, I mean, obviously it's a, it's pierced the skin, right? It's, <laughs> it's covered in, it's covered in porcupine bacteria. There's little barbs. If you look at it under a microscope, it's got all these backward facing barbs, like Christmas tree kind of thing that keep it from that basically advances one direction and hard to pull out. The longer they're in there, the more inflammation occurs from that, that insult in the skin. And it starts to swell around there. And it's essentially just like locking it in place or helping it migrate you know, further in. So the longer you wait, the worse off that you are. So I think that the, the decision on whether you take action yourself or not depends on a lot about your dog and your dog's temperament, depends on how many quills are there? It depends on your comfort level with any of that stuff. Maybe you want a vet to do everything. You don't want to, you know, or maybe you have a dog that you, you know, is just a, you don't have that kind of real. You know, that people don't usually recognize this when this is actual problem. But if your dog's going to bite you, you know, and you can't, or it's like a, you know, eighty pound drop that can take you in a in a wrestling match, then that's probably <laughs> not something you're going to want to tackle yourself without any equipment or or support in the fields. So that's when you just walk them out and make a vet do it. Yeah. And really all the vets really good for, I think at that stage is just we just are the gatekeepers to the drugs that make them stop moving so that you can just open them up and pull them for exactly. wherever they're at. And the experience yeah. to know where and I don't want to, you know, speak poorly of vets, but to, you know, we have the experience to kind of know some of the sneaky places they want to hang out. And those are the ones that cause you big problems down the road, you know. Yeah. The migrating ones, the ones in the back of the throat, the ones that are in the, you know, in the eye, right in the cornea, like a little tip or something like that.
1: And that's that you, you went right where I was kind of going with this is, is, you know, a dog comes up to you quilled and, and they're freaking, you know, they got hit all over the face. It's, It's like, yeah, okay. Well, I see the quills, but I didn't know if there were certain areas that we should really highlight in that process to where like, okay, first and foremost, let's check the airway. Then the eyes, and then, you know, if it's that bad, get to the vet after that. But, you know, is there kind of a checklist and priority to where, you know, maybe just getting hit by a porcupine turns into a greater issue or a bigger issue in the field, it, you know, that you can possibly prevent if you get to it immediately in certain locations on the dog, if that's fair to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. So, like, I'm lo- I want to know about those ones that are sort of in the back of the throat, and they can start on the tongue, or if the dog is given a long period of time to, like, you know, freak out about it, they start pawing their muzzle or rubbing their face on the ground, and then they're going to start breaking off the, you know, the visible white part of the of the quill shaft, and then you're left with that sort of really pokey, small black thing that could do who knows what. Um, so yeah, I, uh, my rule of thumb is like, if you're in the field and you've got a bunch in the back of the throat, like plan on taking that dog in, uh, if you've got some in or around the eye, plan on taking that dog in to have somebody just do a real thorough, um, know, yeah, examination. Like, and you can probably participate in most of those rural vets are going to find when you do these things, they'll, they'll have you back there looking at all the under the tongue and that kind of stuff too. Um, but once they're out and properly sedated so that, you know. You can see better.
1: Yeah. And so really the the black tip that that's the tip that we're concerned about causing the quill to migrate into the dog. So if if you're because you know when the dog gets a hold of the porcupine it, the, the 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 quills are kind of arranged a million different ways. It's not <laughs> yeah. like a clean, it's not an even road where they're all kind of hanging out the same way. Yeah. They're all just kind of Gatling gunned into the dog. And so you have some to wear the black tips facing out, the white tips facing out on others and, and, and all kinds of stuff. And that's something that uh, the most previous, uh, uh experience with with the dog in the field that got tagged when we went into the vet she was kind of explaining that to us too to where the the ones with the black tips in him that that's the one that she was really concerned about more so than the white tips and she you know she was trying to say that if the black tip is facing out you can yank those out a heck of a lot easier because of the of the bars but then also the white part is is a little bit more uh fragile or hollow like there's more give to it so you can snap it off easier
0: oh yeah i mean it's kind of like i'm trying to think of a quick analogy without putting much thought into it but like a like a nerf dart that's sort of what they're like so like the the hard tip of it is like that's where all the business is and then the white part is just the the vehicle that carries it around and i mean it's it's designed to break off super easy because they the porcupine i mean evolutionarily wants to get Hit by the predator and just these things just fall off of it, but then they stay inside whatever bit it
1: yeah.
0: or, or, or touched it or, or or whatever. But they don't really have anything sharp on the white part per se. They um they all look a little different depending on where on the porcupine the quill came from because it's you know it's a a molted kind of kind of look like that that grouse you have back there. um <laughs> But it's it's uh and they and they don't all typically migrate, but those are the ones that are gonna cause you some some trouble. Like you get a tip that's broken off and it's bur- it's buried under the skin. Most likely it's going to sit there and just fester and create like a little miniature abscess to where the there'll be like a pimple or swelling and pus will come out and then maybe the quill will come with it and that'll be the end of it. Or it might just get really creative and find a a plane between some tissue and just start to kind of work itself somewhere that could cause you, like I'm talking about like the chest cavity or deeper under the skin and just create this like kind of long-term nuisance or potentially dangerous situation.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think when you talk to the average person about a quill or anything kind of getting in into a dog's skin, be it a stick or, or whatever, a grass seed or on, you talk about it migrating, they, for some reason in their head, they, they picture that it, it can only migrate so far. Like it can only just mm-hmm. go a short distance you know, I don't think that they've really seen or read or kind of worst case scenarios just how far some of these things can migrate. You know, I've, I've read some incidents where these are obviously worst case scenarios to where it's just like, it'll end up on the complete opposite side of the dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, <clears throat> talk to me about that to where, you know, when we talk about the, these migrating, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, this, that is the primary concern about leaving any of these quills in there to where you're, we're hoping that they just fester out. But if it does migrate, that's something that, you know, it can, it can end up anywhere on the dog.
0: Yeah. And again, that's not the norm. So I don't want to scare people into that situation. I would say that there's probably far more, worse problems with grass ons doing that than porcupine quills. Mm-hmm. That's the vast majority. And then even when you get a dog like what you described, that's just gone to town and a bunch are broken because they tried to remove some in the field and weren't successful. We just have to leave those in there. It's not like we're going to, you know, unless there's one that's like a chronic problem, we're not going to go cutting a little hole and trying to trying to pull it out in those situations. So we have to be comfortable with some of them being in there. And when a dog gets in, they got like five or 600 in their face. I mean, you're not going to find every single one because you've got a dog with like a black nose or a black muzzle and you got a little tiny black, you know, pinhead sort of thing in there. Yeah. You're not, you're not going to see them all. Um, so I that, that don't want people to be concerned about that. But th- every once in a while, they can do some crazy things. And uh, there's room in there for those things to move because you've got you've got the barb. And every time that the tissue moves, it just sort of like kind of crawls like a like a well, like a worm, so like inchworm, you know, can, can sort of do that sort of thing and only in one direction. And if you picture like if you've if you skinned a deer, right, you've got once you get the hide off, there's like that whole layer between the hide comes off pretty easy because there's like this gap, like a like a fascial layer that things are all sort of connected. There's like one big uh, one big layer on the on the dog and on on a deer as well. Of course the things can just sort of slide around in there fairly, fairly easily. Yeah. Um, where, where you get a problem is if it sort of turns, and then you know that can be that, that would cause more or less like a like an abscess or something that would, would boil out or have to be kind of opened up and drained. Um, but sometimes they'll turn and sort of pierce through the through the rib cage, like into the the chest cavity, and then you've then you've taken bacteria that was on the dog skin and on the porcupine, and then you've you've pushed it into that sort of sterile environment. Then you've got a serious problem. Yeah. I mean that's a life threatening
1: deal there. And and you you've brought up the the bacteria from the porcupine a couple times on this. And so I I was I kinda had this written down to bring up at some point, but I want to get your take on this because this can be the kind of the danger if you wait and try and research something at the tailgate after something happens. If if you just Google, you know, porcupine quills on dogs. I, I did that in researching and, and getting ready for this count, this discussion. Uh, there were numerous sources that talked about how we don't need to worry about infection from this because the porcupine quills naturally have some form of antibiotic on the quills in case the porcupines actually quilled themselves by accident so that they don't actually get infected from their own quills. Uh, you know, if you, if somebody Googles that and they read that, they're like, Oh, we have all the time in the world. We don't have to worry about, you know, keeping it clean. <laughs> Clearly you've had this, this incident to where, you know, that these dogs can get infected by these porcupine quills. But I just find it interesting that it, it wasn't just one, one source. It was, you know, Numerous sources on you know that that you go click on it and you read about it, and it's just like, oh, yeah, antibiotic, antibiotic, antibiotic. And so a lot of people if they don't know any better wow. might assume that they're in the clear.
0: I, I'm gonna go Google this as soon as we're done here because I'm, <laughs> really, I'm really intrigued by this phenomenon. I mean yeah. it's hair. It, it, it's hair or fur. So there's even if the porcupine, if this is even remotely true, which i'm I'm thinking how you could take this and spin it and make it sound that way, but that would be too far in the weeds. Uh, to go with your, with your listeners. But I, it's, it's, it's a common encounter with just normal, like environmental bacteria. Anytime you yeah. put something that lives outside and you stick inside. it inside, <laughs> it's like yep. in, a, it's in a, it's an anaerobic environment. There's no air. That's the stuff that, <laughs> that it will go to town in there. Cause it's like, Oh, thank goodness. I've finally reached a place where I can replicate without anything bothering me. You know? Right. So that's, so that's good. They could brush up against a tree. They can get in the dirt and that, you know, yeah. That may not be their own sort of like natural flora of their skin that gets in there, or it could be, or it's probably just something from some spore from the ground or who knows Something. but it's, it yeah. is supposed to be inside the dog <laughs> and well, the system well, will tell you that
1: well yeah. when we wrap this up and you go research that you you let me know your response and I'll I'll include that okay. in the outro <laughs> of this episode yeah. because I was reading that and I'm like all right that's really interesting I even wrote it down and, and it's just like all right I, I was gonna get your take on that and so when you brought it up I'm like all right I, I gotta ask now but while we're on this topic of researching and figuring out what's what's true and what's not true there's there's, there you know just like everything in in this space you know there's a bunch of people that can claim that you know it- Porcupine shoot quills—that's probably the most common one. That yeah. the common, most common myth that people hear constantly. What are some of the other myths that you're aware of uh, in this in this instance, to where people just need to realize that porcupines don't shoot quills? We we know that it's just dogs actually have to come into contact with them. Are there any other myths or concerns that you know we should really just kind of stop repeating and putting it out there for everybody?
0: Well, I've never been able to under. Well, this is not necessarily a myth, but this is sort of like a treatment plan that I feel like is poorly founded. Um, I've never understood how the the concept of cutting the quills before you pulled them ever came into into vogue, because I, I've I've pulled I don't know tens of thousands of them, you know, professionally and as a, as a amateurly as a as a hunter, but. Um, there, there's really, I don't, <laughs> that doesn't seem to make any difference at all, but yet it's still like a lot of people hold tight to the fact that you cut the, the cut the shaft. Uh, I guess the idea is you break sort of the, the vacuum thing of it, but they're, they're already hollow on the end and open. And then that somehow releases the pressure and the quill just falls out. And I can tell you that I've, I've even tried that in practice when I had the time just to see and it, it really makes no difference whatsoever. Uh, really what and why why it's not a big deal if you want to do that on all those quills you go right ahead The problem is that that's just more time and as I already mentioned like seems to be the more time you take in dealing with those quills the more the inflammation builds around each one and it just holds even tighter yeah. so I just pull them and and that that would be the single biggest one i've I've heard of and i've I've seen people try to like Lubricate the dog, like rub it in oil to kind of yeah. loosen those up, and that all was that's what really, I was
1: about to say, yeah,
0: yeah, I've heard that one too, and then I think what you're doing there is just is just reducing the friction on the quill itself, so now you're really gonna struggle, you're more likely to break it. um it's going to be harder to pull because you can't hold on to it, especially if you don't if you're out in the field, you don't have anything to, other than your oil, I guess to put on. you don't have any pliers or hemostats or whatever to pull. that's just not going to benefit you. so those two yeah. I think are pretty prevalent. Um, I don't meet too many people that think the porcupines shoot their quills. I mean, maybe they've seen their dog just like tussling with one and, you know, blood and quills are flying everywhere. And it just seemed like they were throwing it, you know, slinging them at him. But that's other than that, I don't, I can't think of anything.
1: Yeah. And you, you bring up something good on that last comment is, is the friction of pulling it to where, you know, those barbs, you might think that just your, your handyman pliers, your leatherman is good enough to pull these quills after being with a couple dogs in the field and using not only just pliers, but hemostats and all that stuff. Some of these quills suck. Like they just suck to get a, get a hold on, especially pulling them straight out without breaking them off at the skin, which we've already talked about. Like if you break them off at the skin, it's, you know, good, good luck getting a bite to, to get them out. It's uh. What not all tools are created equal in this regard. And so if you go out there and you think that you just have your Leatherman uh multi-tool on on your hip and that's gonna be good enough for a bad porcupine incident, you're in for a long day and uh you're gonna get frustrated. And this is something that again, just, just a month or two ago when we had this this latest incident. <clears throat> we had hemostats, me and my buddy Jacob. So we had four, I had, two, we had two straight ones and two curved hemostats and the straight ones were just about useless. It's like, especially his, they barely got bent in his vest or something and they just sucked. They weren't grabbing squat. Yeah. Uh, the curved ones seem to be a little bit better. You could get a better grip. Uh, but you know, the pliers were next to useless. When we talk about, do you have any kind of light to shed on this? Anything tool wise recommendations? I did realize that while I have the hemostats and they are most certainly better than the pliers, uh, the cheap hemostats are not not quality like you do need to actually go get some decent quality heavy duty hemostats uh especially back to my previous point about the the straight ones that my buddy had that that apparently bent in his pack just walking around hunting they yeah. they were about useless so outside of hemostats pliers you know what kind of stuff can you recommend to have in your pack in case you do come across an incident in the field that you need to just get in after it right then and there
0: yeah, I'm surprised to hear that you didn't have really good success with any of those any of those tools because I feel like those are the ones I think I'd recommend most most people have. Um, yeah. And obviously, the quality of hemostats is gonna like you know run the gamut. You don't necessarily need like German- made surgical grade ones, but probably something that's got a little heft to it and then one that won't necessarily bend in your in your pack over time is a good idea. Um, I think that when I've, when I've had incidents, I've used just like, sort of like a, a, like a knockoff Leatherman, like a Coleman multi-tool or something like that. And it worked, it worked well enough. I like the hemostats personally, even though your experience hasn't been that positive with them, is that you can get them a little longer. So when you're dealing with, especially around the face, you know, it's just nice to have a little, (laughs) a little bit of distance to get your hand away if there's like (laughs) a snap followed by the, by the yank. And I mean, it's, these things really stick in there and you know this cause you've done it, but I'm sure a lot of people listening have not. And when you pull, I mean, you, the skin's going to come with it for a period of time. And then especially around the the upper, upper lip, I mean, you're going to pull the yeah. lip away. I think it, the work is always made easier by trying not to get too carried away. Like start with one one, maybe two if they're super close together at a time, but you want to just try to you know be in line with the shaft, not come out from the side and then just pull deliberately and, and straight out. And don't try to grab 10 at a time because that's where you're gonna get too much torque on the sides of them and it's gonna snap them off. Um, mm-hmm. But man, I, I don't know if there's another really solid instrument besides those. I've, I've minor, um, the ones I use now were just kind of ones I had in my old anatomy kit from veterinary school. They're nothing super special. They may be nicer than what your friend had, but they're probably yeah. seven inches long, yeah, which I think is a pretty good distance for safety.
1: Uh, well, and the, they the, and they
0: lock. You can snap them. It has yeah. the sort of teeth in the middle and keeps them makes them keep a good bite and,
1: on that. And the hemostats that we had, like those, were the best things that we had on us to yeah. work, uh, but they were kind of entry level hemostats. So like I got the cheapest level of hemostats that I could afford that had the locking capability. And those, those were the best ones that we could work. And then when we got to the vet, uh, she had some of those heavier duty German made uh, hemostats. And she actually ended up giving one to my buddy when we, when we left the vet and uh, it was just night and day. I mean, when we got in there, you know, obviously she was able to sedate the dog and uh, so he was down. So like that, that helped. But, you know, just having the right tools for the right job and uh, just those heavier duty hemostats, it's like, all right, well, if you're going to be in porcupine country consistently, it might be worth spending, you know, three or four times more on a good set of hemostats than the, just the basic level that you can order on, what you know, Amazon or whatever.
0: Yeah, there's. I think that's a really useful device. I, th- I think people should... Um, it's nice to have like a little makeshift muzzle as well. Um, if you're working around the mouth, like I said, I I, I tend to like exaggerate this point a lot <laughs> or maybe just overemphasize it. But they, um, so many people get, get bit by their dogs doing this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you have a way that you can just, you know, and I like those little just slip leads, you know, like a D loop at the end and you just speed it through and just kind of wrap it right around the snout, maybe once or twice to get a grip, but they can't open their mouths. Now, there may be some inside that's going to make them uncomfortable, but I think that's still like a necessary, you know, that's just, Step. you know, play play dumb games, get dumb prizes or whatever <laughs> kind, of, right. kind of consequence for the dog. to Well, it's like, I told you not to do that, but um, that will protect you quite a bit. And then um, if you've got one of those dogs that's just like, it's not a matter of like if, but when that season, you know, and they, they just seem yeah. to get better at it every time. Like they just get more motivated to try again after every encounter. There's um there's a a few um kind of like mouth speculums like like keeps the dog's mouths open there's a guy who lives in Montana um Dan Healy and he uh, he makes these little custom made gags and it has this it, has, it looks like a like a like a carabiner almost or like like a C clamp sort of thing and then it's got the it's, it's a lot like a C clamp but when, instead of twisting in with metal it's got these plastic things that go between the molders. So even if they don't want to open their mouth, you just kind of slowly crank and eventually it puts them open there. But if they bite down hard, they're biting down on softer plastic. And then that way they, they can't squeeze and you can get under the tongue. Now this takes okay. a special kind of dog, yeah. right? And of course it snaps behind their head so they can't shake it out. It takes a dog that's gonna not just completely go bananas when you start doing this stuff.
1: Yeah. With. Yeah, we used uh, uh, just the dowel setup. No, up. Dowel know, works, it's very, yeah. Yeah, it's very easy to to make this, and for those that listen to this, maybe they're not familiar with it. Is literally just picture a wooden dowel, you know, an inch long dowel, and and uh, or a big stick, if you will, and you just kind of put it. In the back of their mouths as if it's a a retrieving bumper, if you will. And then you can strap, you know, a, a paracord or rope or, or I saw one guy did it with bungee cords. Like he took a wooden dowel and then screwed two eyelets on the end of it. And then he just did yeah. a bungee cord right around the back. And then yeah. there's your Home Depot DIY $4 jig, if you will keeping your dog's mouth open because yeah to your point you, you keep reiterating it but it is important if you if your dog has a bunch of porcupine quills around the mouth which generally speaking that's where most of the dogs are going to encounter porcupine quills yeah. and they go and bite your 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 fingers off it, you're not much <laughs> good to the situation yeah. you're no. you're not going to be able to to help the dog so it's self preservation you know that's it has to be the first step for you
0: yeah. Many times I've said, your dog is fine, but you need to go to urgent care right now. That,
1: <laughs> that kind of situation. I'm trying to help people avoid more of that. Yeah. And it's it's it needs to be said because if anybody's never been faced with their dog in a situation like that, you know, you might be sitting here thinking, like, "Oh, you know, Fifi will never bite me." Well, mm-hmm. you put them in a in a stressful, high anxiety situation like that, to where they're encountered with pain, they don't know what's going on. They they can't hear you from all the all the other hoopla going around. It's amazing how quick, you know, Fifi that would never bite bite anything, all of a sudden will just take your freaking hand off.
0: Oh, you're you're preaching to the choir right now. Let me this
1: <laughs> is like this is like day in
0: day out as a as a veterinarian in the clinic.
1: Yeah. Sure. Well, and so let's say that you get, you get the dog. Cause again, the two experiences that I've had have kind of resulted in the same outcome to where you do the best you can, you go to the vet, you sedate them, you pull them, but then, then they're just, they're on watch for like weeks. This isn't just a couple day thing. Like both dogs kind of ended up in the worst case scenario in that regard to where it's just like, you know, my buddy Jacob was pulling quills for every day for two plus weeks. And they just yeah. keep coming. They just keep coming. And every time he he would call the vet and ask, and, and it's kind of like n- nobody could tell him exactly what to do. It's just kind of a wait and see type of thing. And, and you don't want to go cutting into a dog prematurely because that can cause a whole mess of other issues. But is it really just wait and see? Is that all we can kind of do in that instance?
0: Yeah. I mean, you're kind of I think how you sort of approach it is, you can sort of choose to use like an antibiotic, somewhat long term, throughout this whole process. And then once they've done with that course of antibiotic, if things start cropping back up, then you know you still got a live one in there somewhere that you got to go fishing for, or sort of hope it kind of comes to the surface. But yeah, because it's sort of a, it's so many variables and how those things behave inside the dog. You really, there's really not much you can do. It's like you can't really. You know, maybe like a gifted ultrasonographer could find one under the skin. You're not going to see it on an x-ray. It's not like you can just go looking for them, really. Um, So you just have to wait for them to show themselves. Or once an extended period of time has lapsed with nothing like that happening, then you're like, okay, we're probably probably good until Mm -hmm. next time we find a porcupine.
1: Yeah, because I mean I'm sure there are tests out there that can see them, but then you're talking about at what cost are you spending the money to to go looking for something like I mean, do they show up on any kind of scans? If if money is no object here, what oh, kind I'm sure of you scans could do it
0: like an MRI or something. Yeah, you know? that's if, what yeah, I was I mean, thinking.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: but that would be, and even then, I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure how diagnostic that would be. But you know, if you had one that was really moving somewhere, you could you could probably see it on that. Yeah. But that'd be yeah. thousands of dollars and yeah, of poorly yeah. spent poorly spent money.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, are there any instances? I mean, it, it kind of seems like it just all the way around, no matter which way you you look at it or cut it, like it just sucks. You know, if your dog gets into a porcupine, it just it, it is what it is. You just you, you got to pull them. It's, it's going to be long. It's going to be tedious. It's going to suck. But like in your experience as a veterinarian, are there any like special cases that kind of come to mind that stand out to you to where like, man, that was a really kind of unique situation uh, that just stands out in your brain when you kind of think back on any of your porcupine encounter experiences?
0: Well, I mean, I don't want to scare people but, but my one or two, you know, stories of hundreds that turned out okay. But um yeah, there was one Brittany one time that that the owner kind of did a, you know, decent job of pulling them on their own and then they kind of waited, which I told you was a bad idea. And then they started to fester and I, I think that it was probably 6 months or a year with like multiple times this dog had to be sedated and go in there and like open up an abscess and find another one. And they just continued to produce quills over the course of about 12 months. Mm. So that, I mean, that was very expensive. I don't know that if the owner had really, like I'm kind of blaming him for not jumping into action quickly, but I don't even know in that situation if had he acted immediately with with perfect technique and gotten them all that still are, most of them it still had the same problem. It's hard to say, but for yeah. sure there was some, you know, kind of like wringing his hands and not not making a decisive decision that it's contributed to that to some degree. But that's that's one that sticks with me because that dog was pretty miserable. And by the time after like the fourth time it shows up for yet another sedated procedure and a you know drain put in, it's pretty it's it's tired of going to the vet, you know. So I felt I felt kind of bad for the, for that dog. But yeah. I mean, I, we talk about like, you know, of course, draughts drot, get made fun of and short hairs are pretty bad too. The, the litter mate to my dog, the one that sniffed it this year. I mean, she's a, she's a fiend, like she's done like five of them and she's like, so <laughs> she well, I can't say it's just, all, yeah, the draughts just seem to have that little blood, blood lust that kind of helps. But the worst I've seen in practice have all been either pitties or, or mastiffs. And really? those, those are the dogs that like they, they hang on and they do not let go. I mean, like the, seems like the porcupine is going to still be attached when they come to the, to the clinic, you know, some, and that my best pictures, which I won't share because i breach your confidentiality, but my best pictures from the clinic are all in those breeds and not the sporting oh, ones. So yeah, that's it could be worse, I guess, is my point.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. My buddy's dry, you know, he, he went and got it and it was a younger porcupine. It, was, it wasn't very old. So it was smaller, but I mean, he, he went in there, got it dispatched it, brought it all the way back to hand, sat down, delivered it as if it was like a, uh, just a brilliant, just (laughs) retrieve, uh, like he's being graded on it in a hunt test or something. And, And my buddy, Jacob's like just standing there looking at him. Like, I I don't know how the heck to get this out of his mouth without sticking me. Like, I don't even know what to do. And I think he said that he ended up getting a stick and like prying it out or something, (laughs) but, but you know, it's, it's like I told him, I'm like, Hey man, you, you got the dry, right? Right. (laughs) That was step one in, in, in your adventure to the porcupine. But, uh, yeah, it is. It is what it is. It's something, to, you know. It it just sucks. It's it's an element that's out there, and it's it's something I try and tell everybody. You know, every now and then I do get a listener. It's like, well, you know. What do we do about porcupines? I'm like, man, they're they're out there. Like you you can't really avoid them. Like, you know, I, I don't know what else to tell you. I'm I'm not gonna let it keep me on the couch. It just kind of is what it is. But prevention, what you're talking about at the very start of this, if you have the opportunity to do an aversive uh, training session with them, maybe you know, stop your hunt for a minute and and take the opportunity.
0: Yeah and I think as you if you if you travel to these places and you don't know them super well when you hunt it's hard but if you if this is your home turf you kind of get used to those little subtle differences between like an actual bird encounter cuz there's usually some indication from the dog that this is going to happen early on like a point or there's like a look and then you're like there's a cattail slew and we haven't seen a pheasant in an hour and this dog all of a sudden <laughs> getting super interested. That's probably your your cue that it's time to go over there and grab the collar before we get into that stuff. Or you just, yeah. you know, you you kind of know the places they like to hang out after a while. Yeah. Um, but I've I've seen it like we were in I was in Checker Country, I don't know, in in early or late October and had a nice point right before um before dark in the sagebrush and there was just a giant porcupine up in there probably 500 yards from the nearest like cottonwood or deciduous tree just in there on its own. luckily there's a point and I was able to like walk in there and grab the collar and just escort the dog away from the situation. So that, like you said, they can be anywhere, but I think, yeah, prevention, if you can, if you can learn the spots they like to hang out and avoid it, if you got a dog that's going to go after them, that's a good idea.
1: Yeah. Well, real quick, as, as we kind of wrap this up, we talked about the tools and everything. Is there anything in your vet supplies that, that you would say bring maybe some kind of painkiller or, or something that maybe like light, lightly sedates them? I mean, you know, you guys are the gateway for the good stuff, I know. But is there something that we can carry in our packs that if we're in a pinch, maybe we're really far back and it's just really that bad of an incident, we need to clear the airway or something? Is there something that, you know, medicine-wise we should be, we should have in our pack for something like that?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, there's not anything really good for that, that the dog's own adrenaline from the situation is not just kind of plowing through. And, true, and I think yeah. that might help if you were to go home and try to get a, the last few stubborn ones when the dog's in a in a better state. I mean, Benadryl is pretty good at chilling dogs out and you can do a pretty pretty high dose in that without any sort of ill effect. Um, you know, we, we use that a lot for stings and bites. Again, I, I'm Sort of giving that as a canned answer, I don't truly believe it's going to be a miracle drug where they're just going to lay there and let you do kind of whatever. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, that's the yeah. that's where it gets expensive is having to to have a vet give you something, some of the powerful opiate and other sedatives to get them to to hold still. It'd be nice if there was, and I and to be to be fair, I, that's what I carry in my kit. I've got two syringes, you know, like ready to go if if I ever need them, they're there. Um, mm-hmm. I've never used them. You know, but So
1: really, the the correct answer is befriend a vet and just make sure that you're going hunting with a vet.
0: Yeah, or at least uh, yeah, or, or have it all stored in your phone and where where to go ahead of time too. like something like people think because I am one that I instantly can you know do all this stuff like I can't it's, I don't have a surgical suite here I'm only as good as my I don't have an X-ray I'm not as good as my diagnostics I, otherwise I'm just using my yeah. just my brain which can get me get me in a jam and has, and got me out of a jam a few times, but I, I'm yeah. I'm sure it's I mean, wor-
1: worth the occasional hunting spot in return at the very least.
0: Oh <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I'd be up for some trades for some new, from new ground to cover. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, Seth, you know, if there's, is there anything else that we should cover on this topic? I feel like, you know, we, we didn't really appease anybody's concern here, but you know, at the end of the day, it, it kind of is what it is. There's no way of of avoiding it. Porcupines suck and, and they can kind of, they can easily ruin your day, and and unfortunately, it's it's lingering effects from what I've kind of witnessed firsthand with my buddy's dogs, and, and that Brittany you were talking about earlier. It just kind of it kind of is what it is. You have to kind of take it in stride. Ultimately,
0: yeah. I mean, you gave me the opportunity to uh, talk about not cutting the quills or lathering your dog in butter or oil. So, like that, <laughs> those said, I can't think of anything more. I'm dying to add to the conversation.
1: Yeah, I think the oil, I think I actually saw somebody on social media. It was a year or two ago. I think, I can't, I want to say it was olive oil that they fell for that. And they were just, the dog just looked miserable. It was just a, a, a quill pen. And it, was, and it looked horrible just because it, it was a wire hair, if I remember correctly. And somebody had just taken just olive oil all over it. And yeah. it just, it was the most sad looking creature on the face of the planet. It just, yeah. don't fall for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Seth, I appreciate you taking the time and, and kind of going over some of this stuff. You know, we'll have to circle back and have you on for uh, for something else. You'll have to let me know your your response after you go researching some of that antibiotic c- claim on the quills or or whatever sure. they're saying that it is. But I appreciate you taking the time with us today.
0: Yeah, you bet, Nick. It was fun.
1: Why is it usually form or function when it comes to shotguns? You either hear about the looks or craftsmanship of this shotgun, while that shotgun over there in the corner hasn't been cleaned in two seasons, but supposedly fits and shoots like a dream. Why can't it be both? This is what Upland Gun Company does. They take your own personal measurements and will construct the very shotgun that should handle like a dream while getting you the looks and custom features that only you can decide on. Whether it's a side-by-side or over-under, English stock or full pistol grip, custom engraving such as your dog's portrait, even down to selecting the Wood grain on your stock, head on over to uplandguncompany.com and build the dream gun that you would carry in the field with your dog for many seasons.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com.
1: All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Seth Bynum, aka the Bird Dog Vet, on Instagram. This was presented by Standing Some Supply DT Systems, Onyx Hunt, Upland Gun Company, and Final Rise. It you know that there's just inherent risks when when you get into any type of hunting, but especially you know when you get into upland hunting and you and you bring in dogs. There's obviously a component or an element of of concern and stuff that we can try and prevent or or at least uh, uh, fix if if something happens with our dogs. But you know there's more than just ourselves that we have to look for when we go out there uh, chasing birds in, in in foreign places and and just kind of that that whole sense of adventure you have no idea what you're going to get into whether that's porcupines or snakes or blue green algae you know there are are just inherent risks when when you get into this so when you talk about porcupines hopefully knock on wood you never have an experience with it but uh fortunately as we talked about in this episode i haven't had an experience with my own dogs but buddies have come across it and and so if you go out and you do some hardcore hunting, uh, with some buddies, you know, eventually somebody in your group is, is going to come across a porcupine. Don't let it, don't let it keep you from going out there, don't let it keep you on the couch or in the house. It, it just is what it is, uh, but that doesn't mean be reckless. You know, have your kit, ha- have all the tools that you need, and and everything that we discussed throughout the episode. But uh, porcupines, it's kind of interesting. There's not a whole lot that that you na- can naturally just know about porcupines just from seeing them, and and so. It, in researching and getting ready for this episode, uh, I just looked up some random information about porcupines and tried learning about them. And so there are some interesting facts about them that I thought you guys might get a kick out of. Uh, there are actually around 25,000 uh, barb quills covering most of their body. They are the only mammal outside of some bats to only have one offspring a year. It's called a porky pet. And quills harden about one hour after birth. Uh, Quills are hollow so that the porcupines can actually float and or swim. And a group of porcupines are not called a covey. They are actually called a prickle. Uh, And then one that we brought up on the episode, which I'm going to give you guys a a response from Seth, is quills are coated with an antibiotic chemical, which prevents the animal from getting infected if they happen to stick themselves. And uh, again, this is what... Is interesting to me when you kind of Google uh, random things that you may not be familiar with. Uh, While Seth and I were talking about this in this episode, I brought up the antibiotic uh, when he was talking about concerns of infection and and having to kind of do things quickly. And, uh, you know, he said he was going to look it up after the episode, and and he did. And he was extremely shocked to find out that, uh, based on my research, fortunately, I was correct in numerous sources saying that – that there was antibiotic on the quills. And his response to that is the bacteria spectrum covered by the quill antibiotic would help in the event of prick such as staphs and streps, uh, but not against a more malicious varieties that would thrive under the skin. By no means a green light to get an, inf- get an infected dog uh left to go untreated. So there you go. It's it, yes, there are qualities, which does help on uh, the prevention of dogs getting infected and, and whatnot, but it's, it's by no means if it does enter the dog and go under the skin, as he was really kind of uh, talking about in, in the episode, uh, that's not a full, full blown, uh, the, the bacteria that the, the spectrum that it's covered, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily cover that. So, uh, still, Act with a sense of urgency, act quickly, you know, in the name of all emergencies and, and, and health scares or issues, the, the faster you can react uh, correctly, the, the better that is, whether that's you or, and or your dog in different situations. Uh, my buddy, Jacob, which we talked about a few times throughout this episode and his dry Tig. Uh, At the time I'm recording this, it's kind of late late mid-December, and uh, he actually just texted me a couple days ago. They were out hunting, and he randomly got another porcupine quill to come out of his nose this time, and uh, so this makes two months removed from that incident with the porcupine in Wisconsin, and he is still uh finding and pulling quills. So this this can stretch stretch on for a while. I mean, as we talked about, as, as Seth talked about in his experiences, uh, you know, it, it can it can be a long drawn out process. So uh hopefully again if, if you come across uh an experience with a porcupine it's quick, it's uneventful and, and you guys can just pull them out and, and just Charlie Mike can continue mission and, and move on down the road. But that's not always the case. And uh you know Tig is out hunting everything seems to be fine but it's just two months removed still pulling quills so uh take that for whatever it's worth um With all that being said, hopefully you enjoyed this. You learned something new. Uh, I at least found the the topic interesting. If you enjoyed this episode, if you've enjoyed anything we've done in the past, if you've been following along on the new uh, video podcast on YouTube and you want to continue supporting the show, then by all means, take a minute to uh, type in patreon.com forward slash Gundogger yourself. Your voluntary contributions go a a really long way in supporting this podcast as well as uh, helping us grow. And, uh, Uh, The Patreon members are directly, uh, you know, we couldn't do this show without them. I just recently placed an order for some new hats finally. So, hopefully, here in a few weeks, those will be landing and, and I can kind of get that announcement out. Uh, but without Patreon, there's no way I, that I could do something like hats. But every, I've been getting a lot of questions about them. So, hopefully, you know, everybody has been asking about them. They're on order now. So, wait here in a few weeks and, uh, you know, place that order when I announce it. But again, thanks for everybody for hitting download and play. Please share it with a friend. And uh, we'll see you back next week. Thanks guys.